Today is um, the last in this series we've been walking through as a family together. It's been a, a good series, and to be honest, it's been a very difficult series for us as a family. The series name is called The Big D, What the Bible Has to Say About Divorce and Remarriage. Four weeks ago, Dave Adams began us thinking about this and actually challenged us who are married about our marriages and then need to see God work and keep us together. Actually, what Mary just prayed about. Then we looked uh, three weeks ago at what Jesus actually taught and said about divorce and remarriage. Then the week after that, we looked at the Apostle Paul and his challenge not only to those contemplating divorce and remarriage, but his challenge to us as married people and also the challenge to many single people among us. Last week, we did something which many of us have never thought about in our Christian experience, and for you who are seeking, probably never considered either. We talked actually about God's own divorce, not just him thinking about it, his actual own divorce, and then how he chose to remarry his unfaithful wife. So lots of questions have been answered, but all sorts of other questions have come up. Many of you have emailed and phoned to talk, to challenge, to struggle, or just say, Thank you so much for dealing with a non-talked-about but everyday experience within our church family. Yet as I was praying and reflecting, I really felt that we needed to end this series in the right way. Not with just a lot of knowledge, though that's very important, but with some everyday wisdom. How do we as Christians and us checking out Christianity, how do we as a faith community pray, help, challenge the many among us that have gone through, have been through, or are about to go through this very difficult question of divorce and remarriage? How do we as a church community speak into each other's lives, biblically and also practically? When I do marriages and funerals, I always use these scriptures of wisdom, and what struck me was they apply so aptly here. Listen to the words of Paul. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, here it is, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's great wisdom in Ecclesiastes for this conversation. It says in Ecclesiastes 4.10, If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the person who falls down, and there's no one to help him up. If there is any situation amongst us that people feel alone, and they've fallen down, and they need community to pick them back up, it's this. Or how about these words? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. That's the great passage we use in weddings, but it's also true here. We as community need to come together to question, to struggle, and support each other. We need each other. That is how the body of Christ was designed. And so today, we're going to end this series with some very practical, everyday wisdom for you who are going through this, and we who are not going through this to support and be biblical with others. And so it is my privilege to invite uh, Wayne Sainer, most of us know him, our pastor of care and counseling, to come for the first time. It's been a year, so let's welcome him back uh, to the stage. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Um, I uh, asked John if I could have just a minute or two at the beginning, sort of not to get right into the topic, but to basically say thank you to everybody. Um, yeah, no. Good moment, yeah. I, uh, I went through a lot of stuff with my eye, and... Uh,
with my eye and with my heart. why I'm sitting. Yeah. And uh, I have, for the last uh, 15 years, um, sought to be a, a model or exemplar, I like to call it, of care. For this community and uh, during my time. I'm so grateful mm -hmm. for everybody caring for me. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. I uh, had lots of help and lots of uh, support from so many people. We had Meals on Wheels for about a month. That was great. <laughs> My wife would agree. That was kind of wonderful. Uh, we had Angels of Mercy coming to clean our place. Thank you. And uh, lots of kind people shoveling my snow in the dead of winter. So uh, I learned a lot about care from the people who I've sought to care for. And so I appreciate it so much. My hope today is to be able to get through this without doing too much weeping. Although I'm understanding that with all that I've gone through and the medication and all kinds of other things going on, that I'm going to be a bit of a weeper for a while. So it's uh, like getting old. It just happens. <laughs> uh, so old man wrinkle is joined with uh, old man weeping. So there we go. I, uh, thank you, buddy. <laughs> so first off, what I want to do is just thank everyone and express my appreciation, my wife and my my family, we appreciate so, so much your care for us. Um, my wife and I were celebrating last night our 28th anniversary at dinner time. That was great. So, so uh, hopefully uh, we'll all live to tell the story about uh, all this stuff. And uh, again, I just appreciate all your care. And uh, today, as we're talking about this issue, I wanted to make a contribution, and so I'm grateful for the privilege to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Yeah. Well, let's take a moment to pray for Wayne, and then we'll get into this. God, thanks again for um, 15 years of service to you, ultimately, and to all of us. And our prayer this morning is for Wayne and his family. Keep them strong. Just give real wisdom about the now and the future. And we also pray, like Mary prayed already this morning, would you empower Wayne to speak into this very difficult situation. Thank you for his care and his love for us, and love for you. Guard him from temptation, of course, and evil, and now use him, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks, Wayne. Really Thank appreciate it. Well, today, uh, like I said, we're getting into a, a really interesting and difficult topic. I'm just going to do this so you can see me over there. And um, I'd like you to sort of intro Wayne with us. Uh, where you want to go today as a community. Okay. Well, the first thing you need to know is Wayne is at whiteboard.com. So I uh, brought my whiteboard and my friend so that I can communicate. And uh, basically, if uh, you're thinking with us, it was actually the question that was po poised to Jesus by the, by the scribes and Pharisees uh, that really brings us to this whole series, the whole reason for it. Yeah. 
And it was Jesus who, when he was asked the question, what about divorce, what about the big D word, actually avoided the question and turned around and talked about marriage. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to understand marriage. And basically, if, uh, if I can draw this out, people always love my drawings, so I, I draw them out. This is what happens when, uh, when a he, which is the guy with all the, all the corners and the edges, you know this stuff, and she, the one with all the curves, uh, uh, comes together and uh, they, they find each other, they get connected with each other, they determine in their heart that they're going to give to each other and they decide to love each other and they make a, this commitment. They come down the aisle and they say, forever I will. And uh, that's really what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to define the importance of talking about marriage. And so um, I actually would suggest that if you're a, a couple and you keep bringing up the D word, that you actually stop doing that and start bringing up the M word. Uh, start bringing up your responsibility before God um, as a husband uh, to love his wife. That's what the scripture tells us. And as a wife to respect her husband. And, um, and those are the kind of things you want to major on. Love and respect. The word marriage is all about that. It's not about the other stuff. Uh, Jesus began to talk about this, and he presumed that, of course, this couple would get married, and they'd have a couple kids. So there's a little guy and a little girl. I call this the Ditka effect. This is a double income, two kids, and an animal. So, <laughs> or something like that. There you go. So that's what happens when, when people come together, and all along the corridor of the 401, there are people getting together, and there are people having these families. We call them intact families. Uh, where there's a he and a she, and they love each other desperately and deeply. And by God's grace, they may have a couple children, and yes, maybe an animal, the Ditka effect. Uh, what John was uh, relating to and what we're praying about is that if this couple is a Christian couple, in fact, they actually have a relationship with someone on top here, and his name is God. And if you're in a relationship and you don't have a relationship with God, you're at a decided disadvantage. What happens is, as you grow in your relationship with God, God actually gives you the kind of stuff that you're going to need to give to your partner, and uh, he gives you those things in great measure, and he keeps rolling those things into your life. Ecclesiastes says, you know, there's, there's a cord with three strands. It's hard to break. So if you can see this as the sort of cutaway of a, of a three-stranded cord, um, the more you connect with God and your relationship with him grows, the more he's going to give you the capacity as a young couple to stay connected with each other, and he's going to bless you that way. Now, this is, of course, what we could call the divine design. This is the way God wants it. A relationship with him, with a woman and a man, a relationship so deep and so connected that by their love and, and their commitment to each other and their physical connection, they have children. And in the Old Testament, in the Near East especially, this is the picture of blessing. Uh, you know, you get this Kodak moment, if you will, is the picture of the man and his wife and his children and all the lapdogs around and, you know, a full table full of food. That's just a picture of what blessing is. This is the divine design. What we've been talking about the last number of weeks is what happens when all of this is threatened. In fact, we've been talking about what happens when this is completely threatened and uh, the love and the respect stop. The couple feels disconnected. Their kids feel over here a little bit disconnected as well and alone. And if you're doing a, a genogram, 
you would say, wow, even the relationship with God starts to suffer, and there's this big divide that enters in. And this, of course, is the big disruption. This is what we call divorce. This is the thing that happens countless times all through our community, and it's brutal. It's brutal on everybody, uh, but as we'll hear in a second, it's really quite brutal on the kids. And uh, so we want to say something about that. But that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what happens when the divine design gets disrupted and uh, there's a divide in, the, in that home and how it affects not only the principles, I'll call them, but the participants, the people around them. That's even us. For some of us who have family and friends who've been divorced, we realize we have a role to play. Um, we don't ask for it, but we're involved in it. And uh, so this is for the people who've been there today. John, this is for people who've been broken by the pain and the, the loss of divorce. And it's also, hoped, uh, I hope, to say something to those of us who surround those people and how we can do better at how we lift them up. That's what I want to focus on. Wayne just referenced, you know, uh, some of the stuff we've talked about. And I've used a, a group of statistics. I think Dave did. But I was, I was struck that when Wayne and I were hanging out this week, he brought a different group of statistics to the table that I think as we struggle and really pray about this, we need to think about. Wayne, tell me about those. Yeah, I wanted to bring this up in connection with a, a website, actually. Uh, there's a, a Rainbows website. And uh, for those of you that don't know, there was a young mom separated from her husband about 25 years ago now. Uh, her, her name was Suzanne and Susie. And, um, and she was separated from her husband. It was a terrible ordeal, and it just ripped her apart. And um, what, what's really powerful is, is Susie realized that the only people hurting more than her and her ex were her children. Yeah. Uh, 25 years ago, uh, I don't know, maybe they're just, they're, people didn't put their heads together the way they have these days. Um, but 25 years ago, this young mom realized, my kids are so broken through all of this stuff that something has to be done. So she looked for somewhere to take her kids so that she could take them to get some support, and there was nowhere that existed. So. Being an entrepreneurial, innovative, vision-casting female leader, she decided that she would create what was not there. And she, she created 25 years ago an organization called Rainbows. In fact, some of you at our church have been trained as rainbow support group leaders, and we had rainbows at our church, and they have rainbows at our schools. And in fact, if you go to the website, there's four locations you can find in this area where you can go and take your kids and get support for them. Uh, the reason why that's so significant is, is on her website, there's a little factoid there, and it suggests that uh, basically 75, and this is, this is America, okay, but 75% of the kids today live in what's called non-traditional families. Hmm. Uh, result of divorce, yes, and death, and you will see the similarity between these two Ds, death and divorce, there's, there's a great similarity there. And so as a result, 75% of the kids she says, in America, live in homes that don't have a mom and a dad. They're not, they don't have this traditional family thing. It's non-traditional. It's not an intact home. It's a, you know, single again, kind of a mother or father leading the way, and the kids are sort of dangling away on their own. The other statistic that was significant is that the kids who go through this great grief that takes place, either through death or divorce, are seven times more likely to struggle with depression. Hmm. Um, you know, Brett Allman speaks to teens all the time. He's speaking to them about all kinds of things they get into. But there's a lot of wounding going on with kids and as a result of what's happening in their home and their family. So the, the stakes are so high, and the, the issue is very significant in our community. Um, ask a real estate agent uh, why most people are selling their home. They'll tell you. It's mm -hmm. a big issue. 
Now, as a Christian community, we all know that our authority is the scriptures for faith, life, and practice. And so um, Wayne's going to take us in an interesting direction, an unexpected direction. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, pull it out. And um, Wayne, where are you going to take us this morning? Well, what I thought I would do is take us to the book of Job. And uh, the reason for that is twofold. You'll, you'll connect with me in a second here on this. Um, but the reason is that um, we always talk about uh, the four-letter word that nobody wants. And that's the word loss. And loss is a very deep feeling. And it's no more, uh, nowhere more profound than when you're talking about uh, marriage and divorce and what happens in a family. Loss is brutal. And... Um, there's no escaping it. Uh, you know, when you start dividing up stuff and losing stuff and losing connection and losing connection with your kids, loss is overwhelming. And so what I thought I would do today is take us to the book of Job because Job, as you know, um, like the people I was describing in the Ditka family here a moment ago, uh, Job had this wonderful, intact, blessed family, and he was a picture of blessedness. Everything was marvelous for him. And um, it was going really well. And then he experienced a terrible, terrible tragedy. Um, and he experienced this thing called loss. And so he, if you're here today and you've been through um, a brokenness of this proportion, uh, Job understands. And I think he's going to be a wise person for you to listen to in terms of how he struggles. Uh, in my drawing up there a moment ago, you'll realize that if you're a Christian person, um, you've got a lot of relationships when the divorce happens that are really strained. Your relationship with your kids, clearly. Mm -hmm. Your relationship with your ex-partner. Uh, your relationship inside your own soul. The kinds of things you think and feel now about yourself as a person with a failed marriage. Right. Uh, lots of brutal stuff going on inside of you. And um, the thing that tugs the most for most people who are really serious followers of Jesus is what happens in that relationship with God. And there's, there's no person better to tell us about what happens uh, when you're going through struggle but you still believe in God than Job. Um, and additionally, the reason I chose it is because I have to say that there are some churches who um, have to learn some things from Job's friends. And I'm going to introduce us to a few lessons that we can all learn from Job's friends uh, who are well-intentioned, but because of their um, misappropriation of God's word, uh, hurts some people along the way. Job being the principal, and I'd, I'd like to sort of think about how we could, as a community, commit uh, to be more loving and more grace-filled with people when they go through stuff. When the divorce happens and the divorce is done, um, there's certain things we could do and there's certain things we better not do as a community. So I want to talk about that through the life, not only of Job, for those who can relate to Job and his loss, but also to the rest of us, uh, perhaps being like Job's friends, maybe needing a little refresher course in how to do this uh, emotional sensitivity thing a little better. So that's what I want to do. Now you bring something up. We all know that Wayne is famous for little acronyms, right? If you've been here for a while. Yeah. And he introduced me to one I'd never heard. It's called GIQ. I thought he said GQ, and then I started confessing, you know, I never got on the front of GQ, how depressed I was. <laughs> Uh, and they said, no, no, John, GIQ. And I said, oh, okay, it's a different counseling issue. So tell me, GIQ. Some of the guys don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, well, most of them do. Yeah, Lord have mercy. It's a fashion magazine, yeah. so sorry. Uh, for men. Um, the GIQ is what I'm going to call the get it quotient. Okay? The get it quotient. And basically what happens is if you're going through this uh, as a, um, you know, a person, 
um, you're getting a lot of stuff, and you pretty well get it, but you've never been there before, and I'm going to help you so you can get it a little better. In terms of what to expect, and maybe to realize that what you're going through is more normal than abnormal. Um, additionally, for the rest of us, we say, well, you know what, my empathy is at an all-time low, and then someone goes through something very painful, and I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. I have a low get-it quotient, GIQ, and I need that to be increased, and so I would like to suggest some things that would help you to increase your GIQ, so I'll do that. Good, good. So let's get into Job. Job chapter 1 is where we're going to hang out, and why don't you t talk that through with us? Well, the first thing that I, I want us to realize is that Job's life changes in four seconds. In four seconds, uh, messengers come from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and they basically come to tell him that, and I alone have survived to tell the story. You know, everything else is gone. All that you own, all your livestock, uh, everything's gone. One, everything's gone. Your children, your children over here, your children over here, your children over here, your grandchildren over here, they're gone. And so in one sudden fell swoop, life turns and changes just like that. And there are some people here that can relate to what that feels like when you have the rug pulled out from under you, when you're just minding your own business in a Ditka-style home, you're married with two kids and the dog, and all of a sudden you're leaving, it's over, we're done. And that, that's a brutal experience. So Job relates a little bit to that. What I really want you to see is, as I, you know, look at Job specifically in chapter 1, is uh, take a look with me at Job chapter 1, verses 20, 21, 22. And there's at least three things that I'd love you to see about Job. And if you're struggling today because you've just experienced a huge loss, um, these are some, some uh, things that you may be able to learn from. Um, number one, uh, in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Now, the first thing you're going to know is Job doesn't pretend that everything is okay. Right. You know? If you've gone through a horrific experience where your marriage separates and divorce, don't come around here and say, I'm fine. Right. Because that's really unrealistic. Job was honest with his human emotions. And he said, I'm broken up about this. And later on, I'll actually relate some of the things he says and how we walk through it as well. But, I mean, the basic thing that you have to understand is if you go through a deep, deep loss, the honest truth is there's going to be all kinds of emotional feelings that are really heavy. And you might as well just say, I get it. This is what it feels like. The second thing I want you to see is that Job, in the verses that follow, basically says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. You know, one quality is honesty, emotional honesty. The other quality is humility. And here Job has really been humbled like crazy by this brokenness that's happened to him. And he basically just said, you know what? You're God, I'm not. Right. I'm human, I'm vulnerable, uh, I'm, I'm a mere mortal. And uh, that's what it feels like. The third thing that's really interesting is that Job musters up something that we might call for lack of a better word, uh, a thing called holiness. That Job, even as broken as he is, there he is, tearing his robe, shaving his head, falling into the ground, which was a Near Eastern custom to express your deep grief, and he worshipped. Somehow in this guy's psyche was the capacity to know that even though the marriage or the relationship was being lost, with his children specifically in this case, 
um, that there was still a thread of a relationship with God. There was still hope that could come. And his intention and his passion was to somehow figure out how to worship God. So he says, blessed in verse, uh, the end of verse 21 and 22, blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And that's a really hard one. I know there's some people who've been through some brutal divorces. And let's be honest, when you go through something like this, where someone perhaps cheats on you who you felt was really honest and forthright with you, and now all of a sudden it's tanked. The first expression is deep grief and sadness. The second expression is, why I ought to just live like the devil then? Why do I I behave myself? I'm just going to go and do whatever I want to do because I'm just so sick of it all. Job would understand that kind of feeling, if you have that kind of feeling. I have a friend who, when she was going through this, um, I remember sitting there, and she was from a very religious background, so the guilt and the baseball bat and the things hitting over the head with the things she should have done and would have done and could have done was brutal. And she was so broken up about it. And she basically said, I don't think God wants to talk to me. Uh, I just feel so full of shame. The last thing God wants to do is spend any time with me. And I remember putting my little bony finger in her eye and basically saying, that's not the truth. God loves you. God does not have second-class daughters and sons. Regardless of what they've been through, God loves you. So that's where God's at, and that's where Job was at. Trying to make the thing work, trying to build the relationship, trying to focus on what he could focus on that would, uh, would be a blessing. And uh, he sought to do that in, in a very relevant way that hits us and is relevant for us. In chapter 3, let me just uh, rattle through this here. Um, chapter 3, uh, get into to Job here. I'm messing around. Uh, sorry, guys. I'm normally having something up on a table, so I'm finding it hard here. But Job chapter uh, 3, verse 20 Basically, if you were to circle all the words that are really heavy words for Job, he says, you know, here I am, I'm suffering, I'm bitter of soul, circle that. Here I am, I'm just, I wish I could find a grave and die. Um, My goodness, I'm groaning all day long, groaning at the sight of food, that'd be heavy for a few people here. Um, My cries pour out like water. I mean, this guy is just really experiencing his emotions to the max. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a little drawing here on the board that I think is significant for everybody who's ever been through anything like grief, like death, or like divorce. And uh, this will be helpful, I hope, for all of us. I I was listening to a woman talk, and she said, I was married the first time and divorced the second time. The first time, uh, rather, the first time my husband died, and the second time he left me. She said, there's similar experiences because you go through the grief, except in the second situation, you just wish you could kill him. So, <laughs> so there are little differences. But basically, uh, this is what I'm going to call the, the loss line. And somebody says, well, when you go through this thing called div- divorce, it's like the death of something happening, and it's like an event on a line. And you have a date, and you have a time, and it's pretty brutal. What happens in my experience is that God, by his grace, actually steps up, and he gives you a gift which we'll call shock. If he had not give you, given you that gift when you go through this very brutal thing called death, the death of a love 
relationship, um, you wouldn't be able to handle it. And so for moments after, you find yourself sort of going, is this really happening? This is sort of surreal. I can't believe this is happening. You'll find yourself saying that. I can't believe this is happening. And that is what I would call a gift from God, the thing we call shock, the thing that numbs us out a little bit and maybe gives us a little bit of a capacity to feel these things, but not so deeply or as deeply as we could. And so we thank God for shock. Then what follows are a number of what I'm going to call waves. And then the inverted wave. So we'll get there. But uh, let's assume... Okay, so if we put those initials together, which is what we do once in a while, uh, we create words and we help people understand their feelings. Uh, we'll say the word together, sad. Can you say that with me? Sad. Very good. Uh, so what happens is there's a wave called sadness. And that's the first wave. It comes over you. The sense of deep grief because you've lost what you, what you once had. Then there's this thing called anger. And uh, if you've ever had somebody walk away from you and take the marbles from you, you sort of think, I was sad initially, now I'm mad. I'm angry. And that's a very deep emotion that everybody struggles with and Job struggled with it in his life. Then there's the thing called, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that this happened to me. And that's when a person, regardless of whether they've done anything wrong at all, begins to say, if only I had, if only I had not. And the deep shame, the deep sense of failure comes and a person is experiencing a sincere brokenness and it's huge. The last thing they have is a sense of anxiety and we'll, we'll call this anxious or being fearful. And basically what now happens is a person says, you mean before it was like this and now it's like this. This change is too great for me and the future is so frightening. I don't think I can do this the way I used to do this. I don't think I can do this. I'm afraid. And they become paralyzed. Hmm. So there's all kinds of feelings. And I, I, li I li list them here so if you're going through it, you will know that you are normal. This is important that you know that. It's also good for the rest of us who are uh, sort of the participants on the outside to go, you know what? That's what my friend is going through. There's like a roller of emotions, roller coaster of emotions. And that's pretty brutal. And then the last one is just really being down. And that happens when a person starts to slide into what we call the pit. And then at some point in time, they crawl out. And it really does feel like that. It can last a year. It can last two years. Uh, I've had friends who basically couldn't believe that this really happened to them. And they got stuck so long in that sense of this isn't real that years later they went, wow, I guess it's maybe time now that I move on. And I'm like, yeah, it takes a while. Now you look at this, and I'm struck by this. A lot of us have grown up in church, some of you haven't. And you made an interesting reference uh, about Job's friends and other churches. And some of the church tradition I grew up in, when I would hear things like this, um, I remember pastors basically saying, let me be candid, suck it up, read your Bible and pray a little bit more. Um, you know, you're a Christian, where's your faith? And so, your reference to Job's friends are interesting uh, because a lot of us may look at that and go, well, you're being unspiritual right now. You're sad. You're angry. You know, get on with it. And you're saying as a pastor and a counselor, a two-for-one special, I suppose, um, that we need to be really careful with that because God's people go through this. We need to guard this. Yeah. 
And it's more than just us being, you know, uh, sort of soft and sensitive with people. Um, I actually think uh, as somebody who's, you know, we all study the scripture, but, you know, we, when you study theology, you cannot make a case that people are supposed to go through life and not have emotions. I mean, we're, if you go back in the Old Testament, God's created us in his image, and he's given us these emotions. Uh, yes, anger is very difficult, um, but it says in Ephesians, be angry, but don't sin. One would suppose you would be able to find a capacity to do that without doing the other. That's what people are struggling with. Um, another verse that is quoted is, don't be anxious for anything. Um, in the Greek text, it says, don't be in a constant state of anxiety. So it doesn't mean that people don't feel flight of anxiety when they're going through heavy stuff and the future they're uncertain about. It just means that we're not supposed to live there as Christians for a long time. Right. So there's a lot of things that people sometimes push on people. Um, there's a great hymn, you know, uh, take it to the Lord in prayer, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. It has a verse in it that says, you should never be discouraged. Yeah. Oops. Now, it's, oops, that's, that's bad... That's bad theology. It was good for the beautiful hymn, but it's bad theology. I thought all hymns were perfect. <laughs> all hymns are not perfect. <laughs> oh, oh. They're all written by people like us. Right. And uh, the difference between the hymns and the inspired word of God is that there's truth there and there is no misunderstanding. And so um, for all the feelings, and you can find them, if, if, you, if you look through Job, if you look through Psalms, if you look through Habakkuk, if you look through... Uh, Paul and Ephesians, you can find all kinds of feelings, and God's created us with those. Um, but yeah, those feelings are really uh, troublesome. They sort of whip up, uh, like, like the water and the wind when you're going through something really heavy. And of course, as Christians, we have to walk through it with a certain uh, poise I'm going to talk about later, an esprit de corps. There's a certain way to handle our emotions, but you cannot deny them. That's the point you want to make. So take us to Job's friends. Well, the, the thing I really want to talk about, because I do think it's relevant for all of us as churches, is how do we, how do we increase our GIQ, our get it quotient? Uh, how do we do, you know, you're a grandmother and the kids come home and say mom and dad are getting a divorce and grandmother falls off the chair. Mm. My goodness, she's in shock. She's having all these feelings too. And she's heartbroken and she's brutally wounded by all this that's going on in her home. You have a friend at work and they're going through this kind of thing and you say, my goodness, I don't know what to say. Someone in your care group, you find out, you know, usually six months later that they're not coming back to the group. Oh, why is that? They're not together anymore. What? Right. And this stuff happens. It's real. And so what I'd like to suggest is that not only can we learn, and I hope you learn, some of the people that needed to take a, a piece of Job's life and go honest with his emotions humble about who he was, and desiring to be holy and hopeful at the same time. Wow, that's what I need when I'm going through a tough deal. The other lesson here is from Job's friends. And if I can say this, um, Job's friends were really a better example of how not to care. And if you've read Job, you will understand that that's part of the truth. But I want to give them credit because the first thing that Job's friends did was the right and the best thing to do. And uh, so if you want to if you want to follow with me here. Um, Job's friends came in chapter 2, uh, verse 12. There it is. And they practiced something that I'm going to call presence. And this is a very important quality that if you want to connect with somebody when they're broken, you want to practice some presence. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and, did, and uh, he did not receive them, 
uh, or he, they did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore their robe, and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was great. Isn't that amazing? Hmm. I have to say, you know, that's pretty amazing. For your friends to come and go, Job is so wounded and so broken we can barely recognize him, and he's obviously hurting, and he needs his friends right now, and there's something that we can do, and we, this is good for a lot of people, we don't even have to say a word. We just be present with him. This is really cool because this is probably the greatest thing that Job's friends could teach us from, if you will, a positive example of how to be when someone is really hurting, is just to be there and to be present with them. Clearly, they tuned into his grief. They associated with him in his vulnerability. They themselves sat down in the dust, and they tore their clothes, and they wept as he was weeping. And they sort of got into his story in a very personal way, and they were just present with him. And it's really amazing for seven days and seven nights. Um, that's pretty cool. So when you and I are tempted to, you know, bring a verse out and hit somebody over the head when they're going through a heavy time, we might be wise to sort of look at this, this team and go, you know what, first things first, they did a really cool thing. They were present with this person, supporting this person, loving this person in the midst of what was going on, and, um, and that was pretty cool. And if, if we could be like them, boy, wouldn't it be sharp if we could be like Job's friends and just be present with him, to be present with our friend or our neighbor or our brother or our sister who's going through a heavy, heavy time just to be there with them. And, you know, in brackets, without speaking. Right. Now, that was part of their custom of the day, and so sooner or later, you know, relationships take words. Um, so they did begin to speak, but it's really interesting how they just hung in there with him and identified with him, and, uh, and I think that's something to learn. They went wrong. And then they went wrong. So what I'm about to do is give you the, I've given you one lesson, being present with a person, I'm going to give you three more, but these are really, if you will, negative examples that have turned into a positive, turned them on their head. Um, as a counselor, you do a lot of thinking about what to do and what not to do, and if you've ever struggled with some of these things, you need to read the book of Job, because you can find light even in the darkness uh, in terms of what to learn. Beyond this gift I'm calling presence, what's really interesting is Job's friends uh, teach us about a thing called posture. And uh, posture is a really interesting word because it sort of helps us figure out what our role is and where we're supposed to stand in relation to the person who's broken. And uh, so I'm going to use the word posture just to make it simple here. But let's say you have your friend, and obviously they're broken, and they've been through this heavy thing. What posture? Where are you supposed to be in relation to them? What role do you have? Now, some have said, you know, it would be really neat if some of us uh, with, as friends would just come under our friend and lift them up and serve them. So sometimes you say, you know what, someone's broken and my posture is to come under and like a servant just to care for them, perhaps with a note or a positive word or do something for them practically. 
You may be this person saying, I can't relate at all to what they're going through, um, so the last thing I'm going to do is try to open my big mouth. I'm going to serve them. And, and that's a good posture. I would encourage you with that. Um, in fact, what is another posture, as another option, if you will, is this posture, which is to support. And you may be the kind of person who goes, you know what, I've been through some losses in my life, and actually can identify and connect with this person and what they're experiencing, and I need to come alongside them, right beside them, and do more than just serve. I need to support them with the emotional stuff that I've learned through my valleys and, and peaks. And if you've ever been uh, the kind of person who is a supportive person, you're the kind of person who, when someone says, I'm feeling these emotions, you say, okay. When I was going through it, I felt those emotions. Those emotions are part of the experience. I'm with you. I would hate you wouldn't lie to me and tell me that you're fine. So I relate to you and your emotions. And there are some people here that go, man, I can't handle these emotions. So you're not the support person. You're the servant person, maybe. <laughs> right? But uh, there are a lot of people who go, you know, I think I should support. The one caveat I would make is when you find yourself supporting, please don't say I know exactly what you mean. Because every person's grief is subjective. Every person's experience is their own. It's individual, unique. And so you don't know exactly what they're meaning. But you've been through some things and you have a similar experience and may be able to support them. You may be able to walk with them as they have the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows. And it doesn't phase you the way it does some of the rest of us. And you need to find yourself in this posture as a supportive, loving friend. Where you get this is if you look at Job's friends, there were three of them, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, not names that you'll hear when they're dedicating children, by the way. Um, these guys, uh, I want to say they did the sanctimonious stomp because they became superior. Where they stood was above, and uh, basically their job was to put Job down. And they, uh, they were all good friends. Um, but they took the wrong posture. They said, you know, Job is over here, and I am up here, and from on high, I have some things that I can postulate about what he must have done to deserve this grief that he's experiencing, and I'd like to give him a very large piece of my mind. That's what Job's friends did, and it was wrong. And um, if you want to look in chapters 4 and 5, you'll see this guy, Eliphaz, um, who basically begins to tell Job all the things that are wrong with Job, and he puts himself in a superior posture and says, um, obviously you're bad, and God is good, and I'm just innocently observing, and you must have done something wrong. And so from up here, this is what it looks like for you. And that's not a posture you want to get into as a Christian. That's not who you are. That's not who I am. That's not what we're about here, to posture ourselves as superior to in some kind of sanctimonious stomp and hurt people and push them down when they're, when they're already broken and pretty wounded, right? Um, the next thing I would talk about um, is what I'm going to call poise. And poise is sort of this skill of listening. Um, my mother said when I was a kid growing up, Wayne, you have two eyes and two ears and one mouth. What does that mean? And uh, that was her way of sort of educating me that... Uh, 
you know, I should watch carefully, listen carefully, and speak once in a while, but sort of, you know, connect with all of those things. And so we have to have great poise. And poise might be what some people call empathy or what they call uh, connecting with the person. Some people call it active listening. Now, some people who come to talk to me, I'm sitting there, they're sitting there, they talk to me. I'm not thinking about tomorrow, right? I'm thinking about what they said, and I'm actively listening, and I'm listening for things like history, like little trinkets of things about who they are and their story, little personality indicators of who they are. And as you listen, and as you use your ears to listen, your eyes to watch, and occasionally speak a word of wisdom, God will bless you. And uh, if you look at chapter 8 again, Bildad is a good example of somebody who um, doesn't listen and who speaks a lot. And uh, Job at one point in his story says, where in the world is wisdom? Wisdom is a combination for those of us who counselor, counsel as what we do to listen and then what we do to speak. And there's a relationship between that and we call that poise. The last thing I want to talk about is purity of words. And uh, this may sound harsh, but Job's friends, if you were to categorize the things they said, many of the things um, could be considered true theology, okay? But they weren't pure when they spoke them to Job, right? Because they spoke things that were true but irrelevant at the time. Hmm. And the twin responsibility of a wise person or a, a follower of Jesus is grace and truth, Right? So the idea of waxing eloquent, if you will, on all the character qualities of God and bringing a person into judgment when they're already broken is not a healthy thing to do. It was Philip Yancey who, remarking on, on the story of Job, said, Satan showed up in chapters 1 and 2. Then he goes on to say with wit the way he does, but he had no need to show up in chapters 3 to 37. <laughs> because Job's friends were doing an apt job at twisting the scriptures, which he was in the habit of doing. So purity of words, you know, to use God's word, which is a holy word, to, to box people around when they're already wounded and broken is not the thing that you and I want to do uh, to that word, which is, which is life and which is wisdom and which is grace. So, so there you have it. Um, some things to say to some people who've been through it. They're the principles in it, if you will. That you're going to go through this process of grief. It's an up and down road. It's really brutal. I would encourage you, though, stay honest with your feelings. You're going to learn a lot about who you are as a frail human person, which we all are going to learn sooner or later. And hopefully, as a, as a follower of Jesus, you're saying, all I want to do is keep following strongly and loudly and clearly, Lord, help me. If you're a participant in someone's life and they're going through a rough time through this, I, I'm praying that you will begin to go, you know what? My relationship to this person could have some redemptive value. I might be talking to a Christian who's ready to say, forget it then. Instead, I encourage them, I love them, I bless them, and I grow them and support them. And I just pray that's the kind of church we'll be at C4. So thank well, you. Well, why don't you uh, pray us out, and then we'll prepare to respond. Thanks, Wayne. Father, thank you for the rich things that you teach us in your word. Thank you for the, uh, the reality of life as it happens. And as individuals, we, our heart goes out to people who have been broken through divorce, uh, for children, 
uh, kids who are affected so deeply, uh, for, for husbands and wives who, who are so brutally, uh, ex- just the whole experience is brutal. We lift them up to you and ask that you would use us to serve them and to bless them and to, and to be an encouragement to them. Father, how we pray that in our community uh, you would use uh, C4 uh, to minister to people, uh, to minister to them that we would uh, recommend this story to them, the story of Jesus, the wonder of his love, and uh, their capacity to grow in relationship with him, even during the worst of times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.